Welcome to the London Walks podcast. This episode, Literary London. I've just emerged from the northern exit of the Embankment Station out onto Villiers Street. It's Adam here. We're looking to track down literary London today. A little bit later on, Andy is going to provide us with his insights into the Shard Lake series of novels. Uh, But in the meantime, I'm going shopping. I'm heading to the Charing Cross Road. We had a message this morning on Twitter from Vanessa B in Canada. Vanessa B is a London walker and she curates the wonderful Stardust classic film blog. And she was blogging about what she's going to be up to next time she comes to London. Uh, She's going to be joining us on London Walks. Looking forward to seeing you, Vanessa. And she's also going to be raking round our bookshops here in the West End. And that's exactly what I'm hoping to do this morning, uh, is dig out a few bargains on the Charing Cross Road. The journey to the Charing Cross Road from Embankment Station here makes me think that looking for literary London is one of the easiest things we'll do on this podcast. Literary London is all around us. London is a city of stories and London is a city of storytellers. We are privileged at London Walks to count ourselves among those storytellers. But we're surrounded by memorials and plaques to the celebrated storytellers of history. Just uh, up to my right here, uh, above Gordon's Wine Bar uh, on Villiers Street, we have a plaque, a blue plaque, to Rudyard Kipling, the poet and storyteller uh, who lived on Villiers Street. Just a few metres along to the east, a statue of Robert Burns. We dealt with Robert Burns on the London Poetry Podcast. Uh, To the west, we have Northumberland Avenue, a pink square on the English Monopoly board. Quite a good one to get. Uh, And there we can find uh, locations from Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. Just as we take a few steps up Villiers Street here on the left, in the arches beneath the old Charing Cross Station and Railway Hotel. Uh, The Archie's Shopping Centre, the sign proclaims, but there's a club along there too, uh, Haven, the gay club, where the great Allen Ginsberg, beat poet uh, and writer, uh, once gave a reading. So, from the plaques to the statues, to the pubs, the Sherlock Holmes pub nearby, to the gay clubs, London is literally from top to bottom. And we're heading to the famous Charing Cross Road, Change days in Charing Cross Road. It was once famed as our London Book Street. We still have a few bookshops left there. The coffee emporia and cheap clobber peddlers have elbowed their way in as well, I'm sorry to say. But the bookshops that remain give us a flavour of what that great and celebrated book thoroughfare uh, must have been like only a couple of decades ago when practically every shop was a bookshop. With my back to the Charing Cross Hotel and the Charing Cross Station, I look toward the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square. The Charing Cross Hotel and Station, not without its own literary connections. For example, the wonderfully named character Tiffany Case 
in the Ian Fleming James Bond novel Diamonds Are Forever uh, comes to make telephone calls here at the Charing Cross station from the public telephone. Uh, this novel, of course, written in the early 50s in a period when, never mind having a, tele a telephone in your pocket, uh, we barely had telephones in our homes. And so uh, the character Tiffany Case, Fleming's creation, uh, uses the public telephones here. Uh, when that novel came to the big screen, uh, starring uh, Sean Connery uh, as James Bond. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever. The, the action had been moved to the great city of Amsterdam. Uh, by the time the novel was filmed, the centre of the international diamond business was indeed uh, Amsterdam. When it had been written, uh, London was a major diamond centre. So, this location features in Fleming's work. It also features in the aforementioned Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes once, uh, he relates, uh, had a punch-up in the waiting room at the Charing Cross station where he lost uh, his left canine tooth. Dramatic stuff. But as we inch along towards uh, St Martin in the Fields in the corner uh, of Trafalgar Square uh, and hang a right, the Charing Cross Road stretches out before us. I would urge you to visit the Charing Cross Road for many reasons books among them of course but I think the principal reason that I'm so very fond of the Charing Cross Road is the service offered in the bookshops and please believe me that every word that follows has been fashioned as a sincere tribute to the men and women who own and run these great shops all along the Channing Cross Road and down the wonderful Cecil Court where I'm standing right now. Keep an eye out in Cecil Court for our colleague, by the way, Richard Walker, leading his Harry Potter walking tours. All along the road, inside these wonderful shops, I have been tutted at, sighed at and glared at by bookshop staff. I have watched as booksellers' eyes rolled heavenward at my plainly idiotic literary requests. I have found my chosen shop shut when it should be open. I have been shooed out of one shop because I was taking too long in my browsing and the shopkeeper wanted to have his lunch. On one occasion, I had to wait until the shop assistant had finished weeping. Copiously, ostentatiously weeping before I could pay for my book. I have often simply been ignored. You just can't get that on Amazon. The bookshops of the Charing Cross Road provide one of the greatest shows in the whole West End. Never mind £80 for a ticket for a musical. Visit a bookshop. The staff and the people who work on the Charing Cross Road provide uh, vivid, operatic uh, service uh, to their customers. And it's the greatest and funniest retail experience in town. Don't take it personally. Just relax and enjoy the show. Let's pick out just a few of my favourite Charing Cross Road and Cecil Court bookshops. Number one here is March Paints in Cecil Court, which sells collectible children's books and first editions. What more thoughtful gift for a loved one than a first edition of their favourite childhood storybook? All along Cecil Court, on the tables outside the shop's bargains, a plenty can be found, from battered old bound copies of Punch magazine to classic green penguin crime books. 
David Drummond's theatrical bookshop is impeccably uh, stocked uh, with theatrical memorabilia. Uh, David Drummond, at pleasures of times past, says the sign, also these days incorporating uh, Intoxica records. Uh, so something for the the great fans of popular culture here uh, in London. Uh, and lovely line in theatrical and movie posters as well. Just up the road, just to the north of Leicester Square Station, we find any amount of books. Uh, any amount of books is open most evenings till about nine o'clock or so. Um, today they have a number of uh, wonderfully lurid 50s and 60s pan paperbacks in the window. Uh, their fiction is broad-ranging, so there's never any need to board the London Underground at Leicester Square without a book. Uh, they have a particularly strong section of... Uh, film and theatre biography too. Their basement is a thing to behold. The basement is one of London's rainy day glories. Uh, stuck in the basement uh, for an entire afternoon uh, browsing uh, the stock down there, often great bargains. Uh, the forgotten art of browsing. Next door is Henry Pordes Books, Booksbot, it says. They even have uh, a very modern thing. They have their website address printed on their sign here. I always find uh, Henry Pordes Bookshop to be rather clubby. There's often a, a salon-like atmosphere here with the chaps uh, behind the counter uh, discussing the affairs of the day uh, in a vivid uh, and most opinionated manner. They keep a fine stock of antiquarian books here. I, I can see in the window as well. Uh, today they have a copy of Harry Craddock's Savoy Cocktail Book, which from this remove looks like the uh, 1960s edition of that London classic. Moving further north yet, uh, the stretch of the Channing Cross Road between Leicester Square and Tottenham Court Road Station, we can see that there are new bookshops on Charing Cross Road still. We're standing right in front of the most famous of them all, the most famous of all London bookshops, Foyles Bookshop. Foyles has moved into swanky new premises of late. Uh, it now occupies the old St Martin's School of Art. The St Martin's School of Art have moved to pastures new, uh, to a much more well-equipped modern building, and it remains one of the world's finest art schools. But the old building uh, now plays home to Files Bookshop, which gives us a, a delicious uh, opportunity in Files uh, to go, if you like um, uh, popular music, particularly punk rock, uh, you can go and stand by the, uh, the Harry Potter books in the children's book section, and when you're standing there, you'll be standing more or less uh, at the spot uh, where the Sex Pistols played uh, one of their first gigs uh, way back in the 1970s. Change days at Files as well. Files was once famed for the intransigence of its staff. Uh, no such thing today. Files is a most modern uh, book shopping experience. They even have uh, a coffee shop uh, on the premises. Uh, and all the books are organised, as one would expect, by theme and within the theme, uh, organised alphabetically by author. Things were not ever thus. It was once the case where the staff at Foyles were famed uh, London-wide for their brusque 
style of service. Finding books and files was also once something of a, a problem to the casual uh, book buyer because the books were organised by publisher, alphabetically by publisher, and one often had something of a quest to find what one wanted. It encouraged, of course, the forgotten art of browsing. The definition of that being looking for what you didn't know you wanted. So you would often go into files looking for one thing uh, and come out with something entirely different but equally uh, wonderful. As, as we say, let's underline no such thing today. Uh, the, the perfect modern shopping experience can be had at Files Bookshop, still family-owned, a beloved London institution. And we'll finish with just a little fingerprint of how Charing Cross has changed. The Charing Cross Road WC2, I'm standing beneath uh, a plaque at the famous 84 Charing Cross Road. It reads, Charing Cross Road, the booksellers Marks and Co were on this site which became world-renowned through the book by Helena Hanf. The book being 84 Charing Cross Road, the tale of the rather brusque New York writer, uh, Helena Hanf, who would correspond uh, with a Mr Frank Dole uh, here uh, at Marks and Co Bookshop uh, demanding literary gems. Uh, and he would uh, find said gems and send them on to her. Their correspondence uh, formed a great platonic love story uh, and was indeed published uh, in book form as 84 Charing Cross Road and filmed uh, a little later, uh, starring uh, Anthony Hopkins uh, and Anne Bancroft, uh, a wonderful and most romantic film about books. As we stand here today, Beneath the plaque for 84 Charing Cross Road, we see the sign opening soon uh, and a large yellow letter M with a registered trademark sign. Food for thought. Okay, so I've just come out of Holborn Tube Station on the Piccadilly Line. Uh, normally I go down High Holborn and then uh, right and left down Little Turnstile um, through Lincoln Fields and then go down to the Strand to my hidden pub's walk at Temple Tube Station. But not today. I'm going straight down High Holborn to Chancery Lane and then Lincoln's Inn. I'm going to record a bit of my own London literary recommendation. The Scottish writer C.J. Sampson and his superb series of Shard Lake thrillers set in Tudor, England. Now, it's going to take me a few uh, minutes to get down there, so in between, here are some London Walker's literary recommendations. Hello, I'm Suravi Banerjee from uh, India. Uh, I've just been on this London walk, and I really feel that before you set out, you should read Great Expectations, because it seems to bring all of London alive that, from that time. My name is Randi Tovaik, I'm from Norway, I'm a teacher, and uh, my favourite uh, London novel would be Mrs Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. My name's Richard, and I'm from Leicester, and my favourite London book is Saturday by Ian McEwan. So here I am, I'm at Lincoln's Inn, um, the home of Matthew Shardlake, the brilliant London lawyer, who largely due to a certain Thomas Cromwell's patronage, has at the age of 35 a thriving legal practice and a fine new stone house. And here it would have stood. Um, I've just walked through the old gatehouse. Uh, the oak door dates back to 1564. The wall I just walked along by Chancery Lane there being some evidence that Ben Johnson, Shakespeare's friend and rival, may have helped to build as an apprentice bricklayer. 
The gate itself is 1518. It's closed at the moment. It's about half past four. Uh, maybe they close a little bit later. But 1518 is precisely the year Shardlake arrived in London from Lichfield, the year after Martin Luther posted his challenge to the Pope on the door of Wittenberg Castle Church. Now, directly in front of me is Gatehouse Court, and there's a huge um, horse chestnut tree right in the centre. But that's where I imagine um, C.J. Sampson puts the fountain. That's where the discovery of Shardlake's murdered friend Roger Elliot where the body is discovered in the fourth book in the series, which is called Revelation. Now... The grounds and buildings of Lincoln's Inn, they've all been expanded since the Tudor period. And today you have behind the old hall, which is I'm staring at now, you have these beautifully kept gardens, which you should go and look at because they're amazing. The baronage is quite different, however, in the 16th century. Shardlake would never have seen the magnificent Great Hall or New Hall. That wouldn't be built for another 300 years or so, 1843. Or the new library. There was an old library, which is sort of dated back to 1471, and that was built next to the old hall, which Shardlake does make use of. Um, there were no stone buildings to my right, that's 1775, or New Square, 1697, or even the old square. But I'm standing, well, I'm actually sitting underneath the chapel. I say underneath, it's next to the gatehouse court. And the chapel dates back to 1428, although the present building is from 1628. Having said that, it says this chapel was reopened after being enlarged 8th of April 1883. But where I'm standing is the undercroft, which is 15th century. So that would have, that would have stood here, that would have existed. Um, it's fairly, it's beautiful here. I mean, you walk past through it, through, through the gardens, and you have a memorial on the right-hand side, and you have another gate, a very old gate, on the other side. That's 19th century, and that's the Lincoln's Inn Field entrance. So I came through the Chancery Lane entrance. So as I trot through Lincoln's Inn and find somewhere uh, comfortable to sit, here's another of our walker's recommendations. My name is Summer and I'm from Brighton and my favourite London book is Brick Lane by Monica Alley. Hello, my name's Ugin and my London recommendation is Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby because it was a book that got me back into reading and I'm a gooner. Go the gooners! My name's Claire and my London book recommendation is High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. So I'm now standing in these beautiful lawns, um, north gardens, and behind me is uh, the stone buildings. They're pretty beautiful. They're amazing buildings. Then to my left, you've got the Great Hall, which is just incredible. It reminds me of, well, kind of Harry Potter, the Great Hall in Harry Potter. Actually, Middle Temple, which is 16th century fine dining hall, that's where they did the rap party, I think, for the third Harry Potter film, I think. So yeah, you get a kind of sense of it. But this is even grander. It's a beautiful, a typical London day, actually. Pouring with rain this morning now, bright sunshine now. So choppy the weather's been. The old hall I talked about a little bit earlier, very, very old, dated back to 1489. Thought to be the oldest of the inns. Thomas More would have been amongst the students. But here I am standing out on the lawn. Like all great thriller writers, Samson's created a, a unique and compelling hero in the form of the main protagonist, Matthew Shardlake. He's kind of sympathetic. He's very sympathetic. He's, he's troubled, he's shrewd, and he's dogged. That's one of his main characteristics. And he's tasked, sometimes against his better judgment, with solving murderous crimes against a background of, of plotting, political machinations, and a, the religious persecution during the bloody maelstrom of Henry VIII's Reformation. But among his 
traits uh, is intelligence, also his kindness, but his ability, I would say, to untangle complicated puzzles, and above all, his humanity. So he's not unlike a kind of Tudor Rebus. However, his defining characteristic is his kyphosis. Shardlake is, in his own words, a hunchback, a condition he developed at a very early age. He said, my disability had come upon me when I was three. I began to stoop forward and to the right, and no brace could correct it. By the age of five, I was a true hunchback, as I have remained to this day. Now, he suffers cruel jibes and taunts from other children when he was a very small boy. Uh, throughout the series, he's routinely subject to insults about his physical impairment. Indeed, in Sovereign, he is the subject of uh, to public mockery by none other than Henry VIII himself, who calls him a, a bent-bottled spider to the sycophantic laughter of the crowd. I've got to say, Henry VIII is a kind of monstrous figure, forever looming in the background. And in the same book, Charlotte describes him as enormous. There's the northern progress, when the northern lords are subjugating themselves at the feet of Henry VIII. And he's bending down, kneeling. He's got a hand across these petitions. And he describes... Henry VIII, he can't look up, raise his head, but he can just about see his legs, which he describes as thick as balls. And um, the Queen, a small girl dressed in silver by his side, he eventually does raise his head. He drops his cap and the feather in his cap, which Henry VIII draws attention to. But he describes his face as red and jowly, a pursed little mouth under a commanding beak of a nose. His eyes are small, deep-set, blue, icy and cruel. And the voice is surprisingly, instead of being... Well, you'd expect this kind of deep, rich and commanding voice. It's oddly high-pitched, almost squeaky. And he, he, he notices that one of his calves is a bit bigger. And he notices these, the crisscross shape of the, the pattern underneath his bandages. He notices that they're, they're clearly the kind of ulcerated calves. And a puff of wind draws a, the rancid smell of pus. Uh, that's not the only vivid description of the king. In, in Lamentations, now that's the sixth and latest book, which is brilliant actually, I think it's, I think it's my favourite one, apart from the first one, Dissolution, there's a typically arresting portrayal of the king, um, who again, grossly obese, he's seen behind closed doors being winched up the royal apartments onto the first floor. As the men pulled hard on the ropes, an immense figure rose into view, seated on a heavily wheeled chair, secured by a leather belt around his immense waist. I glimpsed a near bald head, an immense and round and red round face, folds of thin bearded flesh wobbling above the collar of a kaftan. The king's huge cheeks twitched in pain. Shardlake is also uh, he's got this wonderful sidekick. First of all, this guy called Mark Power. Now, he's the son of the steward who took over his father's farm. Uh, Shardlake leaves Litchfield because he, he, his father realises he can't run the farm and it's handed across to a, a steward, a man called William Power. And he contacts Shardlake in the first book um, and asks if he can take his son on as a kind of apprentice. And he's okay. He's not a great psychic. He's okay. But Sansom soon gets rid of him. Uh, he gets this much more gritty um, kind of henchman for Cromwell, who's uh, heavy drinking, heavy fighting, much more kind of streetwise. And his name is Barrack. And he's got a very pretty and highly independent girlfriend. And later his wife is called Tasman. Now, Charlotte, from a very early age, is what well, he had a vocation, he thinks, to be considered for um, ordination. But of course, he's very conflicted character throughout the entire thing and he later laments I may not be the reformer I was but I'm not turned papist either the bible says God made man in his image but I think we, we make and remake him in whatever image happens to suit our shifting needs I wonder if he knows or cares all is dissolving all is dissolution 
Now, throughout the book, he works for a, a number of characters, famous characters from history. I mean, that's the great thing. They're, they're, they're real Cramner. Cromwell, first of all, and eventually uh, under the patriot, none other than Queen Catherine Parr, his wife number six. I always known them by all boys come home soon, please. So that's Catherine, Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Seymour, Cleves, Howard, Parr. But many of the characters are real people, uh, brilliantly researched. Um, even the evil Baron Richard Rich, Shard Lake's arch nemesis in real life, acquired and destroyed the real estate and holdings of the Priory of St. Bartholomew the Great in Smithfield, and built the Tudor-style gate house, of which part of survives today. But he features in Dark Fire, which is the second book in the series. Uh, Rich was a participant in the torture of Anne Eskew, who's in Lamentations, and Shard Lake is forced to attend a public execution, so harrowingly described in Lamentations. She was the only woman to be tortured in the Tower of London, and Rich personally turned the wheels of the rack. The reason why I love these novels, though... Um, well, I'm going to tell you about that in a second, so I'm going to walk down round the corner from there, find somewhere else to sit and tell you a little bit about that. But before I do that, some final Walker's recommendations. My favourite book is Edward Lear's The Nonsense Poems Raven. and Kathleen from Concert, County Durham. Hi, my name is Mike Flanagan from Chester, New Jersey, and my favourite London-related book is The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. So here we are, I'm back at the, um, the visitor's car park, the memorial in front of me. And you've got the gate house to the left, the new gate house, the old hall to the right. The reason why I've chosen the Chardelet series as my London literary recommendation is just because the books just really evoke the, the, the sights, smells, streets and sounds of Tudor London. It just brings it alive, brings London alive in the 16th century. The background is violence, corruption, religious persecution, an expanding city, a burgeoning new world. Um, there's a great example of that. There's um, his description of a parrot um, in dissolution. The strangest bird I've ever seen, larger than the biggest crow, its red and green plumage so bright that against the dirty grey of the street... It almost dazzled the eye. And that, that's kind of typical. Uh, but a trot down Fleet Street on Shard Lake's faithful horse chancery. It's like a guided tour from the maze of alleyways that are to Cheapside. In places scarce wide enough for a horse and rider to pass under the overhanging eaves of the houses. To the crowded lanes, the water carriers, he describes, the puffy-eyed apprentice from a late-night revel, the stink... The hot weather draws sewer channels. The rooting pig, its snout smeared with nameless rubbish. The stalls of Cheapside Market under their bright awnings. The peddlers calling what he lack. And the occasional lady of wealth wandering around the stalls with her armed servants, faced masked with a cloth of visard to protect her white complexion from the sun. Right up to, if you go to uh, London Bridge, the rotting heads on spikes over the bridge, the overturned carts on Wood Street, the pamphlet sellers at St Paul's, the beggars, which he describes, thin and ragged, displaying their sores and deformities in the hope of charity. Every page um, from the city to the intricacies of the Palace of Westminster and the court, Samson imagines no less than a, a vivid, colourful, vibrant, energetic and three-dimensional portrait of the Tudor world. So I would say check these books out because they're great. They're not as, as literary maybe as, as Hilary Mantel's books on Cromwell, um, but they're easy to read. Uh, popular history, maybe, but they're page-turners and... I think, they're just, I think they're great. Shard Lake could never imagine the huge glass burners that make up the city skyline today, but we do, and we can kind of get to imagine his world, because Paula, who's one of our, our Blue Badge guides, is doing a Shard Lake city walk on Sunday, June the 14th, 2.30. 
So I believe it starts here. We come to Lincoln's Inn, Child Lake's house, and you're going to walk down the street where Guy lived, his friend Guy, uh, see where Chancery died. Now that's a, that's a spoiler alert, isn't it? Sorry. Uh, he gets a new one, Genesis is next horse. But he dies, Chancery at the hands of the evil Richard Rich. Uh, you're going to go past taverns. You may even drink of them, I don't know, but it's certainly at the end of the war you can go back and drink them. Uh, where his faithful companion Barrack most likely tumbled out drunk. So I'm going to go. I'm definitely going to go. London Walks podcast was compiled, produced and presented by Andy Hallett and Adam Scott Goulding. For details of the full programme of London Walks, London's best guided walking tours, go to www.walks.com. The London Walks podcast was an APB production.